G'day, my name's Jacob, and um, I'll be reading from Psalm 33. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Well, hello again, everyone. As I said, my name is Scott. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Pracker. Great to be with you this morning. Um, We're about to do something unusual as a church. Our normal regular diet of a Sunday morning is to work through a book of the Bible bit by bit uh, to see that that's the way God has given us his word and so we want to kind of uh, pay attention to that that's how we want to read the Bible but not for the next little while we're going to do something different we're going to spend the next three weeks digging not into a book of the Bible but into a topic the topic of guidance uh, how we hear God's voice and listen to God's voice for our lives And so as we do this, we won't just be digging into one part of the Bible. Like today, we're not just going to look at Psalm 33, which Jake just read for us. We'll be jumping all over the place to get a big picture of what the Bible has to say about this topic of guidance. So to get us started, I wanted to ask you a question. Uh, When we talk about guidance, here's the question. When we talk about guidance, what kind of things come to mind? That is, what do you want guidance for in your life? Why don't you turn to uh, one or two people around you and just have a chat. What do you want guidance for in your life? I'll give you less than a minute. Go for it. All right. I haven't, I haven't given you near long enough, I know, for everyone to, to talk here. But is anyone willing to be brave enough and tell us, what do you want guidance for in your life? Tell us. What did, what did you talk about? Or what did your partner talk about? I heard you speaking. I know someone said something. How you invest your time. Yep. Yep. The things that worry us. How, how, so guidance around how to, how to cope with them, handle them, approach them. Decisions. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, maybe one more. Anyone's got one more to share? How to live life in the best way you can for God. Great. Now, look, I have a confession to make. I've, I've kind of set you up there a little bit. Here it is, because I think we get guidance backwards all the time. What are the kind of things we think about? It's the kind of things you mentioned, right? Um, who should I marry? What job should I take? Should I change my career path? Where should I live? Should I buy a house? When should I buy a house? Where should the house be? What should I invest in? Do I need to move my family? Should I have kids? Should I stop having kids? Should I retire? When should I retire? How should I spend my retirement? Uh, what's the one thing all those questions have in common? Me. That's right. They're all about me, my life, my future, my decisions. I think guidance is all about me. But that's backwards. Because at its heart, guidance is all about God. You want real guidance? This is guidance, real guidance, from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. That, friends, is real guidance. At its heart, it's not about me because guidance is all about God. Knowing God and glorifying God. Today, that's where we're headed. To dig deeper into knowing our God. And so today, I really want to say two things. Firstly, God is sovereign. And secondly, God speaks. And I want to be up front today and and say, this is, this is going to be, feel a bit different to what a normal Sunday morning would look like. We're going to try and cover a lot of ground today. We're going to work a bit hard as we do this. But my hope is at the end of the day, our picture of God is just growing and growing and growing. Okay, let's start though. Our first thing today, God is sovereign. The God we meet in the Bible is sovereign. That is, he has supreme power. His hands are on the steering wheel of the universe. He is in control. So God is sovereign in creation. We saw this in the psalm that we just read, Psalm 33. Uh, if you look at Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers up the waters of the seas into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Why is everything here? Why do we look up in the night sky and see stars? Why is there water in the sea? Why are we here? That's because God, he has made everything. And he, he is sovereign over it all. He sustains and upholds it. That is, God is sovereign in creation. And God is also sovereign over nature. God is sovereign over the natural world. As we go through, I'm going to keep putting references on the screen. Some of them don't have, I'm not going to put the full text up there, but you can take down notes if you want to. Um, God is sovereign over the natural world. So in the time of Noah, he sent rain. And then in the time of Elijah, God held back the rain. At the time of the Exodus, God sent frogs and flies, hail and locusts and more. God's sovereignty even extends to the point that he is sovereign over small birds like sparrows so that Jesus says not one of them, not one of the sparrows will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. God is sovereign over nature. In fact, come and look at 
Amos chapter 4. This is going to be Amos chapter 4 on the screen. Here, Amos is one of the Old Testament prophets, and he is rebuking God's people for not paying attention to God. And Amos says, uh, sorry, God speaking through Amos says, I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none, and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. The natural world, so rain and crops, water and gardens, vineyards, blight, mildew, locusts, every part of the natural world, God is sovereign over it all. And God is also sovereign over the nations. Who's really in charge of our world? Surely none of us think that Scott Morrison really is in charge of the world, especially not after the week that he's had. But so who is then? Is it, is it Joe Biden, the president of America? Or is it Putin in charge of Russia? Or is it Xi Jinping in charge of China? But none of them really controls the world, do they? God is in control of the nations. And again, that's what Psalm 33 said. Psalm 33 verse 10, The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Global leaders, they have their plans. But who is it that can really deliver? He's God. So Proverbs 21 verse 1, In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. You see again, God is sovereign over the nations. And God is also sovereign over events. God is sovereign over events. So in Joshua 10, God stops the sun from setting while Israel are engaged in a battle. In Judges 6, God makes the dew fall on the wool and not on the ground around it. And then also in Judges 6, the next night, he makes the dew fall on the ground and not on the piece of wool. In Acts chapter 1, God controls the lots that are cast so they fall on Matthias and not on anyone else. God is sovereign over events. So time and time again, the Bible is saying that God is sovereign, God is sovereign, so much so that God is actually sovereign over everything. That nothing is outside of his control. Take a look at, uh, this is from uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. It says that God is the one who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Everything. Nothing misses out. God is sovereign over it all, including me and you and your life. And you know, if you're someone who's decided to follow Jesus with your life, God was sovereign over that too. So just a little earlier in Ephesians, it says, For he, that is God, for God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. If you are someone who's followed Jesus, who's decided to follow Jesus, God is sovereign over that too. And this is something that the Bible says over and over again. So John chapter 10, verse 44, No one comes to Jesus unless God draws them. 
or Acts 13, 48. Those who believe are those who were appointed to eternal life. Or 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. God chose the believers. He's the one that calls them. So do you see here, friends, God is sovereign. He is sovereign all the time and over everything. God is the one in control of this world. So at one level then, guidance is very simple. God's in control. He's working out all things in accordance with his plan. And so he's already guiding everything to where it needs to be, including you. Hey, you thought, why are you sitting here today? It's because it's where God wants you to be. Sometimes we wonder, am I in the right place in my life? And we can get anxious that maybe we've missed God's plan for our life. His plan for our life was great, but you know, sometime when I was younger, I kind of went astray a little bit and I didn't do what God wanted me to do. I made a bad decision. And so now for the rest of my life, I'm always only ever going to get to the second best life that God had in plan for me. In fact, I've probably missed God's plan for me a number of times. So now at this stage, I'm probably up to the 2,346th best plan for my life, or who knows, maybe even more. But do you see what's wrong with that? God is sovereign. You are precisely where God wants you to be right now. Because he is working out all things according to his good plan. Now, of course, this raises a couple of questions for us, doesn't it? Like, if God is in control of everything, including me and my life, am I actually then responsible for anything that I do? Another question it raises is, if God is sovereign over everything, he's not just sovereign over the good things, he's also sovereign over the bad things. So is God tainted at all by evil? Let's deal with those first questions. Let's take the first question first. If God is sovereign and in control over everything, including my life, am I responsible for anything I do? After all, aren't I just doing what God chose for me to do in the first place? This is the, the great question of uh, free will. Actually, I think a, a better phrase to use there is not free will, but responsible will. Meaning that the way we experience life is that we make choices. We really do make choices and we're responsible beings. We're responsible for the choices we make. That's, that's our experience of life. And in fact, that's what the Bible says about our lives as well. We are responsible beings. It's just that the Bible also says that God is sovereign completely. And that can confuse us because how can I really be responsible and God really be sovereign at the same time? And yet that's actually how the Bible talks about life. And so people who kind of use big words to describe things, they call this compatibilism. Compatibilism. That is, these two things, God's sovereignty and my responsibility, these two things actually fit together. They're compatible. So look at how one author puts it. He says, Christians are not fatalists. That is, we don't just think that what's going to happen is going to happen. There's nothing we can do about it. He says that Christians are not fatalists. The central line of Christian teaching neither sacrifices the utter sovereignty of God nor reduces the responsibility of his image bearers, of us. And we ask, how can this be then? How can these things fit together? And so the book goes on to say, 
compatible, talking about compatibilism, it does not claim to show how they are compatible. It claims only that we can get far enough in the evidence and the arguments to show that they are not necessarily incompatible. And that it's therefore entirely reasonable to think they are compatible if there is good evidence for them. And of course, then the question is, well, what's the evidence for this? How, how, how does the Bible talk about it? And there are plenty of places we could go to here. But I want to go to just one place. Let's think about the death of Jesus. I'm going to need your help here. Uh, you tell me, who is responsible for Jesus dying? Who's responsible for Jesus dying? This is not a rhetorical question. You can throw out your answers to me. Who do you reckon? God? Us? Other ideas? The Romans. Great, yep. The Jews. Um, Adam and Eve. Great one. Yeah, so we can, we can go through and chase lots of people who are responsible. The Romans who actually executed Jesus. The Jewish leaders who kind of incited the crowds and incited the, the Romans that they had to do this. The crowds who were riled up and demanded that Jesus be crucified. Judas is responsible because he betrayed Jesus over to the leaders. Herod and Pilate as the rulers of the time. Adam and Eve, who were the first to sin. Me and you, who keep on living in sin. And of course, there is God who's responsible for this. So look at how Acts chapter 2 talks about Jesus' death. It says, this man, talking about Jesus, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, Put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So who's responsible for the death of Jesus here? Well, it's the, the you, the people that are being spoken to. It's the Jewish crowds. But it's also the wicked men, the Romans. And God. It was God's plan. Or again, this is what Acts chapter 4 says. Acts 4. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Who is responsible for the death of Jesus here? There's Herod and Pilate. There's the Gentiles, the Romans and the Jewish leaders. And again, there is God. That is, it's his will. It's his decision for Jesus to die. Can you see here, friends, the Bible is clearly saying we do make choices. We are responsible beings. And yet God remains completely sovereign. These two things are compatible. They fit together. Exactly how it works, I'm not sure. In a sense... I've reached the limits of what I can understand. There's more to know, but I don't have the power to know the details about how God works entirely. And actually, shouldn't it be like that? I mean, if God really is God, if he's infinite and, and, and all-powerful, if he knows everything, and if God really is God, shouldn't I expect him to be beyond my grasp? It's not that I can't really know him. I can. But there are things about him that are beyond me. Am I responsible for the choices I make? Yes. 
And is God sovereign? Yes, he is. In all his great glory, he is still entirely sovereign. And the point of all this is to go, God is not like me and praise God for that. In fact, all this talk about God being sovereign, remember it raises that second question too. Is God then tainted by evil? If God really is in control of everything, he's he's sovereign over the good things that happen, but also he must be sovereign over the bad, the, the evil that happens in our world. So is God tainted by that evil then? Well, this is a really tough question for a number of reasons. I don't have time to dig into this heaps right now, but I want to just sh- point out from the Bible and show you that the Bible doesn't look at it, see it that way. Let, let me explain by, by, by recounting a story from the Bible. Some of you will be, will be familiar with uh, Joseph from the Bible. Uh, Joseph is born into a large family. He's, he's one of 12 sons, and there's at least one daughter in the family as well. But of all the children in this family, Joseph was the apple of his father's eye. His father doted on him, and he knew it. He was given special treatment and his brothers knew it too. And his brothers got extremely jealous of this. In fact, one day it it got so bad, it all came to a head. His brothers cornered Joseph, they beat him up and they sold him to some traveling people so that Joseph could be their slave. And they thought they would never have to see him again. Eventually, Joseph ends up in a, in a different country, faraway country, Egypt. Um, and in a great turn of events, he goes from being a slave to becoming the second in command of the whole of the Egyptian country. And Joseph uses his, his, his position of power to store up food because he knows that a drought is coming. And when eventually the drought does come, he uses this food uh, to stop many people in the country from starving. And during that drought, he happens to re-meet his brothers, they're scared that now Joseph will exact revenge on them. Now he is the one with power. Now he can get even. But look at what he says. This is from Genesis chapter 50. He says to his brothers, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Great evil was committed against Joseph. But how does he see it? He sees evil in his brother's actions, yes, but not in God's. He sees only good in what God has done. This is where C.S. Lewis talked about us needing to have a, a, a wide lens and a narrow lens. A wide lens and a, in, in the narrow lens, we, we focus in and we can see something, and often all we see is the evil that's done. C.S. Lewis says that we sometimes need to take a step back and we need to see things through the wide lens. We need to get the big picture. And it's in, when we see the big picture that we see the good that God is working for, even in the midst of evil actions. The problem for us is sometimes we don't have the power to step back and see the wide lens and see the good that God is doing. But the Bible is telling us that it's there, that God is working for good even amidst the evil. Now, look, this is a big question. There's more to say, and I really haven't done it justice in the past two or three minutes here. 
But the Bible wants to show us that God is a God who's sovereign over everything, even the evil that happens in the world, and yet he is not an evil God. He never sins. He doesn't commit evil. He is always and entirely a good God. At this point, I think it's right for us to just pause and reflect on our God. How great is our God? Who who is like him? The maker of all, the one who sustains and upholds our very breath right now. A God who is in absolute control all the time for our good. Friends, when was the last time you sat down and just appreciated your God? In our church, we, and the kind of church that we're in, we tend to value being active, but doing things. We go to community group, we serve in a ministry team, we, we, we aim to be on mission in life, we volunteer in the community, so on and so on and so on. And there's nothing wrong with all that either. Let me say, that is good stuff to do. Keep doing it, friends. But amidst all this activity, sometimes we can just forget to stop and appreciate our God. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. Amen. That, friends, is true guidance. God is totally sovereign. That's what we've seen so far. And this makes him awesome. Awesome in the true sense of the word. But if that's all there is to God, he also seems a little bit impersonal, distant. He's this great God up there, but he's not very relational. Which is why we need to go to our second thing for today. That is that God speaks. God is actually a a really relational God. Even before he made anything, God was already a relational God because God is Trinity. That is, he's three persons in the one being, Father, Son, and Spirit. By his nature, God is relational. In his very being, God is relational. And you even notice in in, in the way that he reveals himself as, as a father and as a son, they are relational terms. And the father loves the son. And the father sends the son. And the son loves the father. And he imitates the father. And the spirit, we'll get to the spirit next week. But in his very being, God is relational. And he speaks. God speaks to create the world. He says, let there be light. And what happens? Light comes. Look again in our psalm in, in verse thirty three in Psalm thirty three in verse six. It was by the word of the Lord the heavens were made. Or verse nine, for he for God spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. God speaks to create the world, and God speaks to the people he created. And isn't this exactly what we need? It's if we want to know someone. We need them to tell us who they are. Right? 
I'm going to pick on Stuart for a moment. Can I pick on you, Stuart? Thank you. Um, if you just sat back and looked at Stuart, you might be able to know some things about him, like he's a man, he's got silver hair, he's 5'11 or so. You might even be able to make some guesses about Stuart. Like, he used to wear glasses, but right now if you look at him, he's got no glasses, or maybe he's left, he's forgotten his glasses, he's left them behind, or he, he, he can't find them. And also if you look at, look at, look at, look at uh, Stuart, you might look and notice... He's often sitting beside that same woman there, and they're man, same generation. Maybe it's his sister. He's often sitting with that other guy there as well. Different generation. Maybe he's, maybe he's a mentor to the other guy he's sitting beside. But it's not until Stuart actually speaks that you can actually know him. Actually, he hasn't lost his glasses. He's had eye surgery. He doesn't need his glasses anymore. And then that's not his sister. That's his wife, Meredith. And that's not his uh, mentor, mentee, mentoree. That's his, that's his son, Simon. But you can more know than just these facts about Stuart's life. You talk to him and you'll get to know far more about him, like his love for Jesus, like the time he enjoys spending in his garden, like his passion for helping people and volunteering in the community, like his passion for Bangladesh, the community that he spent much time around. We need people to talk to get to know them. We really can't know someone unless they talk to us, and that's what God does. God speaks to us, his people, his creations. So look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. And let me tell you, in the Old Testament, you do see many and various ways that God speaks. Like he speaks directly to someone like Noah, but then he also speaks through dreams to people like Joseph and Jacob. Or he uses a, a, a hand that just appears out of nowhere and writes something on the wall. Or he uses a donkey to speak to Balaam, who doesn't know what to do. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. How do we know God? How do we hear God speak? By Jesus. Through Jesus. If you want to know God, if you want to hear God, if you want to hear God speak to you, Jesus is the place to go. Jesus is the one to pay attention to. Don't go looking for mystical experiences or think that if you spend time in creation, then you will get to know God. No, no, no. Have your eyes set on Jesus. And that's where we're going to pick things up next week. But for now, here's where we land. The big issue in guidance is not the issues that I tend to bring. It's not the decisions I need to make about my job or where I'm going to live or anything like that. The big issue about guidance is God. To get guidance right, we need to realize this is not a question that we bring. It's a question about God. Guidance is all about Him. Again, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen.
friends, can I say to end? Let's be those who have our eyes not set on ourselves. Let's be those who have our eyes set on God, set on our great God. Let me pray that we would. Our Father in heaven, you are great. You are glorious. You are awesome. Help us be those then whose eyes are not so set on ourselves, but are so set on you, so that we might know how to live in order to live in ways that please and honour you and bring you the glory that you deserve. We need your help in this, God. Would you be our, our guide, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.